Hey, Joel. What's up, Tim? Knock, knock. Okay, who's there? Lemmy. Lemmy who? Lemmy into your fallout shelter. Luke Alert Winter is coming. Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, the show where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. As always, you can listen to the show wherever podcasts are sold, like iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. You can also check out our website, supercriticalpodcast.com, for a full list of episodes and the occasional bonus feature or two. Let's get started. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear security for a living. And with me today is my podcast host, Joel. Yeah, this is Joel. Uh, I know nothing about nuclear weapons or nuclear issues, but when I was a kid, I did build forts out of couches and, <laughs> and the pillows. So, you know, I think that makes me eminently qualified to discuss fallout shelters today. It checks the box for me. Yeah. I'm glad you're here today because our podcast is about to enter a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. The middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, between those who can enjoy a piece of art for the story it tries to tell and those who can't stop nitpicking when they get the nuclear stuff wrong. I am, of course, talking about an area which they call the Twilight Zone. We're watching tonight the Twilight Zone episode, The Shelter, that first aired on September 29th, 1961. Season 3, Episode 3, I believe. And what we get in this episode is we get a, a group of friends, neighbors, hanging out, enjoying someone's birthday party, and then all of a sudden, some sort of sirens come off. It sounds like there's a nuclear war about to get started. One family was smart enough to build a shelter. Everyone else tries to get in. Hilarity ensues. This was directed by Lamont Johnson, who won two Emmys over the course of his career, including one for the 1988 miniseries Lincoln, which had Sam Waterston as Abe Lincoln, and Mary Tyler Moore as Mary Todd Lincoln. Uh, the one thing I liked about this is that when the Spielberg version of Lincoln came out, yeah. my mom found this DVD of the miniseries in the dollar bin at the grocery store and decided to mail it to me because she thought it was the one that just came out. That's what parents do best. Yeah, I haven't gotten around to watching it yet, Mom, but I, uh, it's, it's somewhere in my DVD collection. Twilight Zone, if people may not be familiar, was a show that ran throughout the 60s. It was a very groundbreaking show. Each episode dealt with some kind of real-life topic. Sometimes it was a little bit of magic, a little bit of fantasy, a little bit of science fiction. But it was always told to with, with a moral, a message, some kind of way of getting at a story in a way you may not expect. Some of the classic episodes, like the one where William Shatner's on an airplane and he's the only one that can see the monster on the wing... You have other classic episodes like the kid who can bend time and space and makes all his family basically be slaves. It's very crazy, but it's also very entertaining. It's the, the kind of the brainchild of Rod Serling, who was the host, the narrator. He wrote a bunch of episodes, including the episode that we're watching tonight. We can also go through a little bit here some of the other cast members. We have Larry Gates, who won an Emmy 
on the soap opera Guiding Light. Joel, did you watch Guiding Light? I remember the name Guiding Light, and that's about all I remember, I must admit. Well, it must have been good because he, he won an Emmy on it. He is Dr. Bill Stockton, who's our shelter builder slash birthday boy. I have to say, obviously they would put it on his birthday. That's, <laughs> that's when the world ends. Yeah, poor guy. Jack Albertson, who plays Jerry, our friend Jerry, who's like the semi-rational friend. He's the one that wants to get to the shelter, but he's like, you know what? Maybe we should try to find somewhere else to go. Jack Albertson, if you remember, he played Grandpa Joe in the Willy Wonka movies, which is kind of hard to not see when you're watching these. Part of the Willy Wonka movie is trying to get into this mysterious chocolate factory. In this episode of the TV show, he's trying to break into a fallout shelter. Kind of a similar role. A little less uh, happy in this one. In terms of how this was received, it was a pretty popular episode. It was very influential. A lot of uh, pro-shelter fans in the 60s praised it as a public service announcement for how you should build your shelter and be prepared. Don't be that one person on the block that's not ready. And a lot of anti-shelter people who didn't like the idea of building fallout shelters praised it as showing the evils of shelter. So it got both of those two communities uh, together. Can I just say... I have to wonder if there was like some, you know, Cold War Ron Swanson. I mean, let's face it, Ron Swanson probably still was Cold War Ron Swanson because uh, he's timeless. Uh, sitting there being like, what kind of fallout shelter door is that? Mm-hmm. You know, you break it down with some random pipe that you just happen to have like next door. The prop for that door was just a wooden door with like aluminum on the outside of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when they started actually like pushing it against it, it looked metal. Mm-hmm. And then when they actually touch it, oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Production value. You know, there's some limitations. Ron Swanson would have at least like six inches of steel. Steel that he forged himself. Right. He'd have a shelter within a shelter. <laughs> Decoy shelters. Right. A couple other random facts about this episode before we get into the plot. Uh, we've talked a couple times about the Citizens for a Sane Nuclear Policy. This this group that was in the 60s and the 70s who were basically anti-nuclear war, anti-nuclear weapon advocates. We talked about this in the failsafe episode and our special bulletin episode, uh, which might come out here pretty soon. Rod Serling was an active member of the Hollywood branch, similar to the director, Celine Lamond, uh, who directed Failsafe. Uh, he joined in 1955 before Twilight Zone was even, a, was even ever debuted. You can see that he had this kind of topic on his mind for quite a long time. It wasn't just something that he wrote uh, because he thought it would be good TV. It was some sort of a message that he was trying to get across here. Uh, And it's also not the only Twilight Zone episode about fallout shelters. We have Shelter Skelter from 1987, Time Enough at Last in 1959. That's the one with Mickey from Rocky whose glasses break uh, right at the end of the nuclear war and he has enough time to read his favorite books but he doesn't have the glasses to be able to do it. Very sad. Uh, And also another great episode called One More Paul Bear from 1962, which is about a guy who tries to play a prank on his enemies by tricking them that a nuclear war happened and that they'll be stuck in a shelter and they need to apologize to him because, you know, they're stuck in a shelter. Twilight Zone had an affinity for this as a plot topic. All right, Joel, so let's get started on the plot. As usual, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen this episode, we're about to get into the nitty-gritty of the details. It's on Netflix and a couple other places online, so you have no excuse if you haven't seen it yet. Each episode of The Twilight Zone starts and ends with a little narration from Rod Serling about what what you're going to get in the episode and then the moral message at the end. Even though Rod Serling has a famous narration voice, I think uh, Joel can handle it. What you're about to watch is a nightmare. It is not meant to be prophetic. It need not happen. It's the fervent and urgent prayer. urgent prayer of all men of good will that never shall happen. But in this place, in this moment, it does happen. This is the twilight zone. Well done, Joel. Yeah, missed my calling. 
You have the face for radio. Thank you, Tim. We got a birthday party. It starts out with a bunch of friends from around the neighborhood singing happy birthday, talking about how great their friend is, Dr. Bill Stockton. This is how all of my birthday parties go. Everyone gets dressed up in suits. <laughs> you put on a tie. Straight out of casting from Leave It to Beaver. Yep. That was, it's always weird when you make us do it, but we still have a good time. So everyone's uh, having some toast, making, making some jollies uh, about how great Dr. Stockton is. He saved a number of them uh, with his doctoring, including their, their kids and stuff. But there's something they have a problem with. What, what do they have a problem with with the good doctor? So they were saying, you know, kind of backhanded uh, comments. Oh, we love you, you know, but we've also kind of put up with you as you've been working on this dumb fallout shelter in the back. While you're generating all this noise, spending all this time, when you could have been doing more interesting things like hanging out like we were in the neighborhood with your neighbors. Now, just as they're having that conversation and uh, Dr. Stockton's kid comes in, who I thought was like also straight out of casting, yep. you know, from Leave it to Beaver where he had like this nice uh, sweater on and like, you know, perfectly parted hair. Are you sure that that's what you heard, Polly? I didn't hear wrong, Pop. That's what he said. He said, turn to the Conrad station, and then everything went completely blank. Four minutes ago, the President of the United States made the following announcement. I quote, at 11.04 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, both our distant early warning line and ballistics early warning line reported radar evidence of unidentified flying objects flying due southeast. As of this moment, we have been unable to determine the nature of these objects, but for the time being, in the interest of national safety, we are declaring a state of yellow alert. The civil defense authorities request that if you have a shelter already prepared, go there at once. If you do not have a shelter, use your time to move supplies of food, water, medicine, and other supplies to a central place. Keep all windows and doors closed. We repeat... You're in your home, go to your prepared shelters or to your basement. So then you see Dr. Stockton, even though everyone else in their suits and nice like Sunday dresses are all still talking, smoking cigarettes, because they all smoke cigarettes. He goes to the radio station and, and people are like, what's going on? Turns it on and then you start to get this audio from this uh, radio broadcast that they're incoming unidentified objects that just may or may not be nuclear-tipped missiles. Uh-oh. Not saying it is, not saying it's not. I don't think he wished for that when he blew out those birthday candles. Exactly. This is the Conelrad system. Weird abbreviation for Control of Electromagnetic Radiation. So right off the bat, you know, it's got something to do with nuclear stuff. But it's mostly just radio waves and TV waves. So this is a system, who what is basically the precursor to the emergency broadcast system that we know today. It started up in 1951, and any radio made between 1953 and 1963 was required to have these special markers on the radio frequencies that would designate certain stations for to be the civil defense station. This is a cool tool for announcing that there's some sort of an emergency. So during World War II, you had air raids, and you had the sirens, and you had to have a way to communicate to people that something was about to happen, and they should get inside and, and protect themselves. Well, once we were worried about the Russians dropping bombs on the country in the 50s and the 60s, this was another system that they had to develop. You know, there wasn't a Twitter back then. There wasn't, you know, cable news all the time. There had to be some way to interrupt. There wasn't color. 
There wasn't you couldn't. Yeah. So there's yellow alerts and red alerts and all that stuff. But you, but you don't know <laughs> to say it. Um, so what the radio would do is it would announce that there was some sort of an incoming attack. It would basically submit a continuous broadcast of civil defense information using radios and TV stations. At the same time, this is kind of cool, at the same time, switching the transmission stations on and off, and it would keep changing the stations, because what it would do is it would try to confuse incoming Soviet bombers from being able to use radio waves to navigate their way across the country which is something that, the, uh, that a lot of different air forces did during World War II, this was a way to prevent that from happening. The AM stations would turn off after they announced that you should go to FM. FM stations would be on for five minutes, off for five minutes, and it would keep going back and forth with tones and noises and, then, and providing some, some general information. And according to the book, Duck and Cover, Civil Defense Images in Film and Television in the Cold War, by Melvin Matthews Jr., a book that I mentioned in our mini new episode two, which is the Blast from the Past episode. I recommend this book already. Essentially, what yellow alert would indicate is the potential for an incoming attack. Red alert meant this is already happening. It's, it's war is confirmed. Yellow alert provides a number of, of, of responsibilities for law enforcement. It indicates to people that they should get out of wherever they're at and get into a shelter or try to get to either their own personal shelter or community shelter. So once this comes out, Everybody scatters, right? The Stocktons, which I just realized is a pun, uh, Stocktons, because you stock a shelter, uh, or at least maybe I'm always thinking about puns. Maybe it's not actually a pun. But they go around trying to stock their fallout shelter with food and water and light bulbs, but they don't have light bulbs because the, the wife forgot to buy light bulbs. They were going to be on sale. I know. You want to wait for that good sale. No, they don't have Amazon Prime, I don't think, in the 60s, unfortunately. But they try to get inside the shelter. They lock the doors. But then what happens, Joel? Well... Uh, I mean, the neighbors, they scattered, but then they realized that, hey, they don't have anything remotely like a, a fallout shelter. And they were actually the ones criticizing Stockton for building one. One by one, <laughs> uh, they slowly kind of show up. One of the neighbors, he shows up as they're finalizing their preparations. And so they have kind of a brief encounter with Dr. Stockton. And they do their best to uh, plead, say, hey, you know, we, we, we could be in there too. We could bring over some of our water. And Stockton kind of goes through, you're not in an emotional or philosophical, mm -hmm. like, no, every family has to be on its own. He, he's just very straightforward and says, look, there's too many people for the amount of space and the amount of air that the air filter mm -hmm. can provide. In stark contrast to what you'll see in the neighbor's reactions, he simply concludes coldly, but also he's sympathetic to their situation, but he says, you know, it's just not... Uh, tenable. It's unsustainable to bring in anyone other than three people. Right. He so, doesn't. He doesn't say. You know. Don't talk to me. He says. No. Go. Don't ask me this. Go right. to your own basement and. Right. Try to look for supplies. Do what. Whatever. You know. He. He doesn't gloat. That's the other thing. Like the beginning of it, all the neighbors are saying, "Oh, you're dumb." Blah blah blah. And he could have easily have just said, "I think like 99.9 percent .9 of us." Yeah. Hey, I told you so. I'm. I'm out of here. He didn't go knock, knock, who's there, you outside my door, and then slam it. Yeah. Unfortunately, one by one, the various families, you know, one has a baby, one has like two young kids who are, they don't know what's going on. I think they're even in their pajamas or like <laughs> robes. They had robes as, you know, sure. six-year-olds, not pajamas. And then they're like at one point in the house playing with the, the, the birthday cake that they were enjoying <laughs> just like 20 minutes earlier. Well, while the parents are arguing about what to right. do about the nuclear war that's about to get started. Right. And at that point, the Stocktons have gone into the shelter. They close the door. 
which we'll find out is not that great of a door. Uh, and the neighbors, they're all kind of trying to figure out how they could reason with the Stocktons to let them in. And panic just starts to take over this uh, survival instinct where there's a mix of a lot of different emotions, discussion about who is he to, to think that he's worth saving more than any of us. You mm-hmm. know, how dare he not let us into uh, his bomb shelter? Slowly, the panic overtakes the neighbors, so they start turning on each other, where one person starts making a crack about the other person's. He's generally referred to as, like, a foreigner. We don't. So. It doesn't matter. It's just another excuse that he can do to whittle the pool right. of people that can get in a little bit more. You start to see, like, as they disagree on what to do, you can see their, their nerves are frayed, and so they start, you know, just making all these offhand comments about they hate this person or they hate that person for whatever reason, whether it's their... Right. Whether it's a, they're a foreigner or, or some other um, issue. Fisticuffs ensues. Right. Well, then they actually come to blows. This is all the neighbors. This is all the while all the Stocktons are like in their bomb shelter. And I bet that kid, again, who could you know be on central mm-hmm. casting for Walter Cronkite tonight, is probably just sitting there being like, I have no idea what's going on, but – no, I'm gonna read my comic book. <laughs> but but the, but the wife and uh, the doctor are, are talking a couple times during this, maybe a little bit before all the commotion starts. But they 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 talk to themselves and they wonder: Is this right? Do we keep our neighbors, who are our friends, we just had dinner with them a couple of minutes ago? Do we keep them out? Is it worth living in a world where we've known that our our best friends and our our neighbors and stuff are just right on the other side of this door? slowly dying of radiation and or explosions do they even want to live in a world where if they do survive what's that going to be like afterwards you know going through the rubble seeing all their dead friends i don't think those light bulbs are going to be on sale anymore yeah and uh you know there's this poignant moment where essentially the the stockton dr stockton and his wife they're um talking and good doctor says it's for him our 12 year old son you know he's he's only 12 years old he hasn't asked for any of this that's why we got to press on. That's why we got to survive to give him some hope that maybe he could survive and still see some light at the end of whatever tunnel we may be going down into. Mm-hmm. There's clearly a conflict on both sides of the door. Uh, the neighbors fighting each other, trying to figure out very quickly, uh, turning into like the almost a tribal animosity between groups where they, if you're surviving, that means my survival is less likely. Mm-hmm. So I got to make sure that I'm at the front of the line for survival, whatever I got to do. Exactly. I know this was going to be a theme of the episode. So I'm wearing my Legends of the Hidden Temple t-shirt from the Nickelodeon TV show Legends of the Hidden Temple. This is a... Uh... I believe I'm a red jaguar because I am not a gosh darn blue barracuda uh, or an orange orangutan or whatever. I've picked my tribe, and I, we are going to survive probably by going to the jungle. It's, there's not going to be any radiation in the jungle. I have and, no idea what you're talking about. but it... Joel, despite the fact that he's in his <laughs> mid-30s, I think was actually born in like 1999 because you missed most of the 90s things. Yeah, yeah, 99 is a good year. So what happens? So they're like, well, what do we got to do to get him to open it up? And at first they want to reason with him. But then they start thinking, you know what? We got to get in that bomb shelter. They say, hey, let's just break in. <laughs> Randomly enough, the guy, and I'm pretty sure it's the guy who was, uh, you know, making comments about the foreigners, uh, said, hey, one of the neighbors nearby has a giant pipe <laughs> in, his, in his house. Let's go grab that. Yeah, and I was thinking, like, I don't know, some, like, three-foot 
you know, pipe. I, I don't know. You're like Mario Brothers or something. <laughs> and then all of a sudden they come back and it's this 15 foot long. It's a serious pipe. I mean, it's a serious pipe. And so they use it as a battering ram. At this point, they've recruited two or three other neighbors. So they're literally, you know, all holding it at once. And all, like, all of them, not yeah. just, not Jerry, yeah. Jerry included, the one who just a few minutes ago, Jerry yeah. and Marty, all of them grabbed the pipe. You know, it's like a scene out of Braveheart or, you know, <laughs> uh, Lord of the Rings or something. And it was funny because I thought there was going to be this ongoing problem. Oh, this is a pretty serious fallout shelter. He spent a long time, according to the neighbors, to like fortify this thing, blah, blah, blah. Five seconds. It takes three hits from this random pipe. It wasn't even, I mean, it was long, but it wasn't like, I think, it wasn't meant to be a battering ram. So. I think I think in a deleted scene, the pipe was found out to be made of depleted uranium. Oh. Well, yeah. That's, I go. think it's in, that's in the novelization, maybe. There you go. Okay. All right. Graphic novel, maybe. So, uh, so they just easily break down the door. I don't know how that thing was going to withstand anything, much less, you know, maybe a... Maybe a sneeze, it would withstand that. Well, so there's a difference between a fallout shelter and a bomb shelter. A fallout shelter is meant just to survive the radiation, the fallout, the right. particles that come down in like snow. You can actually have a fallout shelter above ground. There's nothing that says you have to have right. one below ground. But if you're close to where a bomb's going to go off, you yeah. might want to build a bomb well, shelter. Maybe we should mention at in one point in the conversation they do mention that the neighborhood is I think at the one of the wives says 41 miles away from New York, uh, New York City we presume. There was some concern of we would be in the immediate path of of at least one of these bombs. Right. The, were... the radiation though, but not the the actual bomb last itself. Right, right, right. That's that's true. That'd be a big bomb. So, and again, you know, I'm the layman, right? So if I was building the fallout shelter, I probably would have used pillows from my couch <laughs> forts that I would uh, – but th they could withstand more than three hits from that dumb pipe. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to put that out there right now. Anyway, so they break it down. I thought that was pretty uh, weak compared to what I would have thought. You know, for someone who put a lot of time and effort into it, I would have thought, mm -hmm. you know, hey, if there's one thing to fortify, maybe do the door. But anyways, I digress. Just as they break in, literally just as they break in, they've literally just boom – the, the door is kind of breaking into pieces and they've kind of like fallen over onto themselves as, as they finally got through and they're getting up to like literally walk into the shelter and Dr. Stockton's right there and he's like looking right at him. Just as that happens, Conrad comes back on and says, This is Conrad. Remain tuned for an important message. The President of the United States has just announced that the previously unidentified objects have now been definitely ascertained as being satellites. Repeat, there are no enemy missiles approaching. They are harmless, and we are in no danger. State of emergency has officially been called off. We are in no danger. Sorry about your uh, satellite TV, <laughs> but you're all okay. No one's going to die. No bombs. No nuclear bombs. Whew. Did you get the sense that it was... A satellite that was being launched that thought that it was a, a detection of an incoming attack. A satellite that was orbiting and then like, oh, that's a – what is that up there? Oh, those must be bombs. Or was it a satellite that was coming down and like burning up in the atmosphere? I couldn't tell. I, I was thinking it was the third option because if it was something that was being launched up, they would have had a sense of who it was and what it was. So this is actually interesting. This is the reason I asked was in 1995, in January 95. There was a Norwegian rocket that was a weather satellite. Rocket technology, which is pretty close to missile technology, could solve kind of the same idea. The U.S. and Norway notified the Soviet Union that, hey, 
By the way, as we normally do, this rocket's going to go up in the air and we're going to tell you it's not a missile. Don't think it's a missile. I guarantee you it's not a missile. Uh, that message never made its way to the people that should know about this in the Soviet Union. And Russian early warning systems detected an incoming missile that was following the same general path that a rocket would come to hit Moscow. They didn't see the uh, letters that were written on the side of the, the rocket that said not a missile? Some sort of mistranslation. I think it says definite, definitely missile. Uh, this was the first time and one of the only times that a nuclear football, which they call the Chaget in Russia, they have a much cooler name. It refers to a mountain in Russia. It's very cool. But this was the first time that it was activated. Boris Yeltsin activated this thing. They were waiting to find out if it was an actual attack. Uh, turns out they were able to confirm that it was just a satellite launch. But this was a pretty scary time for U.S.-Russian not nuking each other relations. So that's why I asked about whether or not you thought it was a satellite being launched or coming down. Because mm. obviously this is 1961 when this episode came out. So several decades before this other event happened. It is. I think it's interesting that this what was happened in the show uh, ends up being a problem later on. Yeah, no, definitely. Just as they were trying to get into the shelter, all of a sudden they're looking at Dr. Stockton and they're thinking, oh, whoops. Sorry about that, man. My, my bad. Sorry about that. Um, Don't worry. We'll, I love the line. We'll pay for the damages. Yeah, we'll pay for that. And they said, oh, you know, we'll have a block party tomorrow. We'll raise <laughs> some money. We'll, you know, pass around the hat. Damages? I wonder if any one of us has any idea what those damages really are. Maybe one of them is finding out what we're really like when we're normal. The kind of people we are, just underneath the skin. I mean all of us, a lot of naked, wild animals who put such a price on staying alive that they'll claw their neighbors to death just for the privilege. We were spared a bomb. I wonder. I wonder if we weren't destroyed, even without it. There's clearly this awkward tension where, you know, the neighbors, for you know, both the the panic, conflict, and like tearing at each other that they were doing outside of the bunker, and for all the things they were saying in anger to Doctor Stockton when they were trying to break in. All of a sudden, they realize. Oh, those were all horrible things. Maybe I'm a horrible person. And they're just looking for some kind of sign that Dr. Stockton is coming back to normal and won't start yelling at them and saying, <laughs> you're horrible people, I told you so. And rather than say, I told you so, rather than you know get super angry while he's walking in the house and seeing all of the birthday cake on the ground because of all the stuff they pushed aside when they were trying to break in. So you literally saw the party scene yeah, the table. 20 minutes ago, and then it's like off to the side, clearly kind of a physical representation of the relationships that were seemingly upended just as the table was upended. Well, where do we go from here as neighbors? Because we clearly live right next to each other, and you were literally like, seemed like on the brink of like killing me. And, and I like how he didn't just blame how awful his neighbors were. But he blames himself, too, that he didn't know that he would be feeling those kind of emotions and keep his friends and neighbors out from a shelter. Like, that clearly affected him, too. He doesn't necessarily feel that his way of acting in this circumstance wasn't uh, peachy keen, either. Yeah, I, I got the sense that he was both mad at himself and mad at the situation because he clearly didn't do anything wrong. Mm -hmm. he, he took the initiative to try to plan for his family, and no one would— think that any one individual or one family would need to build a shelter to hold the entire neighborhood and so it's 
you know, that mix of not shame, but like maybe guilt of hmm. so mad that this happened to our family and, and neighbors. But at the same time, like I didn't exactly deserve this. Well, maybe I, I would, I would say that he probably might reconsider building a shelter and, and upkeeping it for the future because I don't, I think those moral quandaries, which I think we'll save for a little bit later on in the podcast when we do our parking lot movie discussion. Uh, but, right. but I think, uh, I don't feel that he is coming out of this thinking that he did everything right. Rod Sterling comes on and gives us our, our narration to close out the episode. No moral, no message, no prophetic tract. Just a simple statement of fact. For civilization to survive, the human race has to remain civilized. Tonight's very small exercise in logic from the Twilight Zone. Although I think that that's funny because it does kind of seem a little bit like a moral message. It's a, it's a good one there because Rod Sterling didn't really know how to end this episode because he and his wife were still trying to grapple with this very decision. And there is really no answer to it. Uh, it's kind of how the viewers ended up taking their own message out from this. But forget about messages for the moment. Let's get super critical about the plot that we saw in this episode, The Shelter. We covered fallout shelters pretty extensively in our mini-new episode 2, the episode we did on the romantic comedy Blast from the Past. But let's talk a little bit about this one. Does this one pass the test? Because Rod Serling tried. He tried to fact-check this episode's script uh, with a number of different sources. He tried to talk to Frank R. Dunbar, who was the, the survey director for the Los Angeles Shelter Survey in the Office of Civil Defense. He wanted to fact-check this script, gain some background information on how to build a shelter, and some of the other issues that came with it. But Dunbar didn't get back to him until the episode was finished. He was able to talk to some people. He was able to talk to a group called the DeForest Research Group, who does a little bit of research in this area. They had a few issues with some of the problems in the script, uh, namely when the announcers declare a, quote, state of martial law in uh, when they talk about yellow alert. Uh, yellow alert or red alert doesn't actually refer to a state of martial law. They kind of just added that uh, into the into the episode. It gets it sounds pretty cool because um, if there's martial law, it seemed like there'd be a lot crazier restrictions on people uh, moving around there. This is a precursor to the purge. If there was martial law, I don't think you'd allow a bunch of neighbors to run around with pipes in the street. Um, but anyways, they were. Uh, they also advised him to delete a line in the script when Connell Rad was making its announcement that, quote, no commercial traffic of any kind will be permitted on streets and highways because yellow alert doesn't actually prevent that. Um, there was also a line in the script that they asked to be removed where the Stockton family was hearing the angry screaming cries of the people outside. Uh, because that was not accurate, because a bomb shelter should have kept some of that noise out. Whatever fallout shelter he built, they shouldn't have been able to hear noises uh, out, out and about. I think they do that well in the episode where when you hear Stockton talking, it's very muted and very quiet. So those are the little small details. So it seems like Rod Sterling definitely tried to do his homework on this. But why did the characters feel like there was a need to build a shelter, uh, at least the Stocktons anyways. And here's a little bit of a, a historical background. Fallout shelters. The Eisenhower administration in the 50s didn't actually promote the construction of home fallout shelters to respond to the threat of nuclear war. They thought it was too expensive and not enough people would have them and there were some moral quandaries there. They didn't actually promote it. But then there was a report that was called the Deterrence and Survival in the Nuclear Age, otherwise referred to as the Gaither Report, which is named after H. Rowand Gaither Jr., who 
organized this particular report, kind of similar to like the Warren Commission at the end of the uh, JFK assassination. And this came out in November 1957. And this particular report said that there could be measures to reduce the vulnerability of our cities and people. And it called for a nationwide fallout shelter program to convince the Russians that we would be willing to deploy our strategic air command nuclear forces against the Russians in the event of a crisis, because we wouldn't be too scared by their silly bombs that would come over to our side, because our people would be self-safely protected in a fallout shelter, and then we would come out of this surviving and ready to go forward. Quote, with proper planning, the post-attack environment can permit people to come out of the shelters and survive. It called on $22.5 billion over the next five years to build these shelters across the country, and this is now $195 billion if you would adjust for inflation from 1957. So I don't know, Joel, does that sound like a big amount for a program like this 195 billion today hey that's not that's not too bad um i mean i'd commend them for just being able to get through the appropriations process for that <laughs> these days you know well fortunately they actually didn't uh so much um the eisenhower administration battled the committee that wrote this report tried to keep it secret the president didn't want to have a panic and would also as we know from Eisenhower, wanted to rein in defense spending. Thought this would make people scared and that they would then want to build more weapons and bombs and all this kind of stuff. But that was until the Berlin Crisis of 1961, which was a few months before this episode aired. And in 1961, there was a huge craze to build fallout shelters because the USSR demanded the withdrawal of all Western forces from Western Berlin uh, within six months. The Soviets had East Berlin and the West had West Berlin. And ultimately, what came out of this was the Berlin Wall and the division of uh, Berlin from East and West and West, East and West Germany uh, for a number of years until the late 80s. Neither side backed down during this crisis. After Kennedy met with the Soviet Premier Khrushchev in Vienna that year, and uh, Khrushchev very casually threatened thermonuclear war if the West didn't back out and remove their troops from that area. Kennedy, in response, went on national television to the American public in July 1961, where he called for a nationwide fallout shelter program and $207.6 million to fund it. This was largely money for building and stocking community shelters, so not the ones in your house, but ones that would be good for like an entire community or city or a small town, uh, basically restocking the ones that were built during World War II. But there was also a push for private shelters in your home. And the quote, Joel, you do a good Kennedy here. Why don't you read this up here that he told the American public? Maybe this is my only qualifi qualification <laughs> for being on the podcast because I'm, I'm willing to give it a shot on the uh... – and the event of an attack – the lives of those families which are not hit in a nuclear blast and fire can still, can still be, be saved. saved if they can be warned to take shelter and if that shelter is available. We owe that kind of insurance to our families and to our country. In contrast to our friends in Europe, the need for this kind of protection is new to our shores, but the time to start is now. In the coming months, I hope to let every citizen know what steps he can take without delay to protect his family in case of attack. I know that you will want to do no less. Thank you, Joel. According to the book Atomic Audit, in a chapter by John Pike, Bruce Blair, and Stephen Schwartz, who edited the whole book, quote, practically overnight, the home shelter business exploded. Uh, nice little pun there. Outfits with names such as Peace O Mind Shelter Company sold hundreds of units and practically 
sold hundreds of units in only a few weeks. By the end of December 1961, about 200,000 families across the country had built fallout shelters, which isn't a huge number, but it's a, it's a pretty significant number. It's definitely enough to break the societal discussion uh, of people in fallout shelters. So Kennedy tried to get money for this program and other ambitious programs to build enough shelters to protect everyone, which he said would cost $3.5 billion over five years. But it wasn't supported by many of his advisors, didn't get a lot of support in Congress, and more or less faded away over the next couple of months and years. JFK moved instead to a condition of what's called mutual vulnerability, which meant instead of trying to fight a nuclear war, we basically would hold the Russians vulnerable to our weapons, and we would somewhat recognize the fact that we were also vulnerable to the Russians' systems as well. So that's when you ultimately create mutually assured destruction, and that was instead of a nationwide fallout shelter program. Although they did build out of this, in 1963, the emergency broadcast system, which relayed warnings of an incoming attack, uh, which is what we have today. In the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, in October 1962, brought back the shelters a little bit into the public mind, but way fewer people than expected actually made the commitment to, to build on this and, and tried to rely instead on community shelters or, or maybe just suffer the fate, whatever that happens to be. But let's also take a, a moment here to the shelter in this episode. Didn't we save that for our other podcast, Tim, our supercritical fallout shelter where we, uh, you know, review different shelters and, uh, it's like this old house, but this old shelter <laughs> on this episode of this old house, where we speak in, where we speak in horrible Kennedy accent, <laughs> the entire... this door needs to be reinforced. <laughs> that's more Quimby, I think, but, uh, this shelter needs more clam chowder. I'm sorry. That's, that's what, that's how I access my Boston accent. We are alienating an entire state of listeners right now. We, we, I apologize, Boston, but also go Lakers. Um, okay, so let's nitpick the shelter a little bit. How, we, how, how do we have it portrayed in the episode? It's, it's kind of interesting. The shelter from the outside, it's kind of – does it look like to you that it's slanted, that it's at an incline? Like the bricks aren't yeah. straight up? It looks like the bottom of like a pyramid or something. I've looked at a bunch of my fallout shelter manuals from the 1960s. I've got some in black and white. I've got some in color. I have the Life magazine from September 1961 where Kennedy makes a big push to have people – build shelters and it has blueprints in them. I don't remember really any of them that say why it needs to be at, at an angle. I think that was just probably because it looked cool. Um, but it had the weak door, as we already talked about, that could easily be broken by any kind of pipe you have laying around. Uh, inside the shelter itself, they've got one shelf that looks like it has a couple cans of food, maybe like 10 or 20 cans of food, mostly carrots. And I think I saw some soup. Um, you have some medicine that's just like generic medicine. You have some, I think it's like bleach. You have eye drops in case your eyes have uh, fallout material in them and you kind of flush out your eyeballs. I've got a bunch of batteries up on the top shelf on the left side there from like the, the backwards angle. You see a bunch of, of batteries and things. And then you have a bunk bed, a regular bed. You have a really lame-sized fire extinguisher. can't possibly put out that many fires. You have a really tiny, I would say, incredibly insufficient first aid kit. And then he's got two or three lanterns. That's pretty much his shelter. But if you're playing under lost rules, all you need is uh, water, right? <laughs> yes. And, uh, and know how to do CPR. And know how to do CPR. And that's like 99% of <laughs> all the things that could happen to someone. 
and they dealt with nuclear weapons. We are going to do a lost episode, the the Jughead episode, at go. some point. Uh, and that was hidden underground later on, which is kind of like a shelter. I guess the the hatch is kind of like a shelter. Hmm. We'll have to get back to this later. Uh, so this shelter has a lot of things missing, and I thought it was interesting that they don't really recommend that you have that you'll have some time, but not very much time. If they announce an incoming attack in the episode, they say, oh, we've got like 30 minutes to an hour. I guess that depends if they're they're incoming missiles, they'll have a certain amount of time. Today's modern missiles take about a half an hour once they're launched to when they hit their targets. If it's crossed the world from like that's a it's a pretty long distance. It'll take about that about that that time, about 30 minutes. These are most likely going to be incoming bombers. And maybe a couple of missiles in 1961. Uh, so you don't really have a ton of time. So they, you don't have enough time to make basically to fill up water. You shouldn't do that. You should already have water ready to go. You should have your... They had a lot of water. Yes. Which is what you a need. Lot. Water is one of the most important things you need because you can go several days without food if you don't have to do any sort of manual labor or anything. But you can't really go that long without water. Um, so they should have had the water already in there. And... As part of the, I guess, plot demands, there aren't enough air filters. There's only enough air filters for the three of them to last two weeks, which I did appreciate the two weeks because two weeks is consistently understood to be the standard amount of time that it would take for the worst elements, the worst radiation to come off of like the gamma rays would take about two weeks before that died down enough to be able to go outside. Now, if you lived right next to where the bomb fell, you might be a little stuck there for a long time, but in the surrounding areas where fallout happens, uh, about two weeks is what you need, not what they talk about in Blast from the Past, which is something like 15, 20, 30 years, uh, not, not, not that amount of time. You'd probably still want to have extra air filters. And the reason why you need air filters is because they have, in the background, in one of the scenes, you can see the air crank, which is going to be what circulates bad air out and good air in. And if you do that, if you're actually physically bringing air from the outside um, not letting it just kind of seep in. You need an air filter to keep out particles that you're bringing in. You'd probably want to have extras than just a few that are there. So I'm surprised that they didn't have any more. That With the name like the Stocktons, you should have a nicer stock. If you have a shelter that's underground, sometimes you only really need like an exhaust vent, a pipe that goes right up into the ground that has that little hat on top of it, kind of like a, kind of like a dunce hat. On top of an air vent, the upside-down cones, those Mm. tend to be perfectly fine. You don't actually need filters on those because they don't draw air in. So any sort of fallout particles that may fall down on the ground aren't going to get sucked back up into that. So that should have been a backup, but that's okay. They Stockton had his plan. He knew the air filters were there. He didn't expect for any other people to come in. But the one thing I will criticize a little bit about this, and this is a, a real debate amongst the fallout shelter building community, whether or not to build your shelter in your basement. Because it makes sense. Like, Joel, if you were to build a shelter in your new house that you just recently purchased, you would think maybe to put it in the basement, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The part of the problem is, is if you build in your basement, is if your house falls over, you're now buried underground. Because you can't get out. That is a fair observation, yes. If you have your basement shelter, you're able to go up into the house. Say you're one of those people that really stocked well and you have radiation... Um, protection equipment so you've got like the full suit marty mcfly or marty mcfly though that kind of radiation protection suit you'd be able to go inside of your house get some food and water other kind of supplies your comic books if you forgot them you'd be able to get those and bring them down to the shelter but if your house falls over 
you are kind of stuck. So what you want to do is if you have the ability, if, you, if money is no option, if you want to spare no expense, you want to have a shelter that is in your backyard that nothing can really fall on top of that has an entrance and an exit both maybe inside the house Tim, and, out, and Tim, outside. Tim, what you're saying is basically you can get that in-ground pool or you can get a fallout shelter. Priorities. You have to balance mm-hmm. one versus the other. Can it, I fit a jacuzzi in the in-ground? <laughs> I think they might have shelter. a jacuzzi. I think they might have a jacuzzi in the fallout shelter and blast from the past. <laughs> get the water for the jacuzzi. <laughs> we don't have enough. Hope you got a lot of batteries. <laughs> Would solar panels still work after nuclear fallout? Depends if there's nuclear winter. Mm. And if the fallout debris falls on top of the panels, they won't. I don't know. You're the solar expert. Mm. I don't know. You could market nuclear radiation fallout proof solar panels. Mm. Might be a business opportunity. I look into it. But this whole argument might be moot. Because if you're living in a city that's fairly close to where a bomb will get detonated, maybe not the one in this episode, but if you're, you know, you're in the suburbs of a major city, most likely what's going to happen is an airburst detonation. These are the ones that we mentioned before that are several thousand feet above the ground. And when they explode, they don't really like kick up much dirt from the ground because they make this big circular explosion above ground. And they try to have a blast area as wide as possible to destroy things that are softer targets, like houses and in non-concrete buildings, things like that, which wouldn't produce a ton of fallout. What really happens with fallout are ground detonations when you're going after military targets, hardened hardened silos, um, things like that. If you're living in a city where there's an airburst attack, what may happen is a gigantic firestorm will get created and the oxygen will get sucked out of your shelter and you will be left to suffocate in this box that you created. Always keeping it positive, Tim. You're kind of playing the numbers on where you want to build your shelter and if it's even worth it. So fallout shelters are designed not to always deal with the blast from an explosion, but to prevent those particles from getting inside the shelter for two weeks until they dissipate and you're safe to go back outside. Um, But I think the important thing to, to know is that radiation exists as a danger along a spectrum. There isn't a situation where there's no radiation, and then there's a situation where there is radiation. You and I, Joel, right now are being hit by radiation. Cosmic rays... Um, construction equipment, concrete, the bananas I have behind me, all of that is producing some kind of radiation. It's all about degrees and whether or not you should have the kind of dosage limits that are over your lifetime or over a short period of time. Those are the kind of things that you really, really uh, need to worry about. Um, And what makes a good shelter? Because we talked a little bit about what was a bad shelter in this episode, but what makes a, a good shelter? So Part of the biggest things to worry about with shelters are three things. This is according to the Department of Homeland Security. You have distance, shielding, and time. Distance, you want to put enough material between you and the radiation. So that could just be distance. It could be a physical distance. It doesn't necessarily have to be something because that will protect you. But if you don't have that distance, if you're in a house and you want to be in a shelter, you should worry about shielding. Now, the heavier and denser the material, the thicker the walls, concrete bricks, earth, the better. To reduce gamma radiation by a factor of 1,000, which is pretty good, the standard measure of what you would consider a shelter to be effective, you would either need 4 inches of lead, 3 feet of packed soil, 24 inches of concrete, or 5,000 feet of air. 
the best thing is to have some kind of combination of those things. So you have your concrete blocks, they're infilled with sand, you've got maybe some aluminum or lead on the outside of your shelter, and then even on top of that, you have packed earth on top of you. So some are, combination of those. What are jacuzzi systems made of? Is that concrete? I think some advanced steel. Well, I'm willing technology? to sell to you right now. If you write me a check, a lead line jacuzzi with a mm. dome over the top of it that huh? is also made of lead. Hmm. It gets fairly hot though. Hmm. It's also just a boiler. Well, you know, it's a, it's a jacuzzi. It's supposed to get hot, right? <laughs> uh, the final factor is time. So fallout loses its uh, intensity fairly rapidly over the course of two weeks. Um, one of the other elements to consider when you're building your shelter is your doorway or your entrance should have a 45 degree angle from the entrance to from the outside, like the physical outside, the you know the air outside area, and then your actual shelter. So. You want to have a shelter where you have like steps, imagine like steps to your basement, and then you turn left or right before you physically get into your shelter door. And the reason is, is that radiation works in line of sight. It goes in a straight line and it's either stopped or it's blocked. It doesn't bounce off of a wall, doesn't turn corners. So that's something that would be pretty helpful for you. The problem with the shelter in the Stockton family is in this kind of foyer to the shelter, I don't know how to describe straightforward. it. Straightforward. Um, it's straightforward from the entrance, like outside. And so if the building gets knocked over and there's fallout seeping in, it's not going to help you that much. I mean, if the concrete is 24 inches and thick enough and it's infilled, you should be okay. That door doesn't seem very thick. But maybe it's supposed to be some kind of lead that's also weak. But the, there's a window. There was no lead in that door, Tim. I, I don't Come think on. so. I'm trying. It was barely even wood. I think it was like... I don't know what it was. It was like, I, honestly, it when I saw him break it down, yeah. like you saw it splinter like into pieces. I was thinking, what is that, paper mache? So that should have been his argument. Don't come into the shelter. It literally has a wooden door. This door is paper mache. You don't want to come in here. I don't even know why I I'm in here. I spent all my money on the air filter, <laughs> so I had to make a paper mache door. Yeah, so don't even, don't even try to come in here. Um, but this foyer entranceway has a window that faces outside. If that window gets blown open... Or even if fallout accumulates outside that window, there's a direct line of sight into their door. So that's not a great plan or layout. Don't be an idiot, Stockton. Ugh. You're, you're you got doctor smarts, but you don't got shelter smarts. Couple other things you want to have in your shelter. You want to have your AM, AM FM radio. You got your Conrad. I think he's got that. That's pretty good. Got your radiation detection equipment, so you know if you, if you heard that loud noise outside was actually a bomb, or if it was just maybe a satellite that fell out of the sky. Uh, you want to have extra batteries, which they've got. You got your flashlights, you got your candles, um, and one thing to think about: Do you have a weapon? Do you want to keep your shelter protected against wolves or neighbors or neighbors that where, are? Where did the wolves come from? Or, na- or neighbors that are wolves? You know all those bears. Things. Bears. Wolves that dress up like your neighbors. Or mm-hmm. neighbors that are wolves when they take their humanity off. I mean, uh, we are talking about the Twilight Zone. So. Could be anything. Exactly. Um, so maybe have some maybe have some silver bullets for your gun. Uh, but those are the kind of things they they do talk about that you might that you might need to be able to survive this. Over the course of the year, two hundred thousand people, as we mentioned, built fallout shelters. But by May nineteen sixty two, the president of the Chicago Atomic Shelter Corporation declared that the shelter market was dead and 6,000 shelter manufacturers had closed their doors. So the kind of the market collapsed, the bubble burst, 
and not a lot of people built shelters after that time period. So what I find odd about that is how how an entire industry seemingly rose up around this when it seemed like most of this is just kind of common construction. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it didn't seem that different from like some kind of like rudimentary playhouse or like treehouse. <laughs> I mean, some of the two, like, you know, yeah. you probably wouldn't use cement blocks, but I mean like in the same kind of temporary structure. Well, there were all kind of options. It depends on what you want to spend. Yeah. You but can... I mean, wouldn't they have been built by like your traditional construction companies? I guess There were. That's... There were places right. that would offer to to go into your house and mail, build you this very nice shelter that would give you the all of the benefits of modern life. Or you like could, a jacuzzi. Like a jacuzzi. Or it could just be a situation where they dig a hole in your backyard. They drop a giant pipe, like a steel pipe, into the floor, they bury it with dirt, and they put an entrance on it. Like, that is another option that's perfectly reasonable from the idea of protecting yourself from fallout. Um, that's another option, too. Or you had all the plans to build it yourself. There was all kinds of options. Because the Kennedy administration was trying to show people that, hey, don't freak out. I know we're a little bit worried about the Soviets. I'm worried, too. But you have options. You can go to the community shelters, which will stock up, which there are some, but they weren't enough. Or you can build your own if it just cost you $700 in those dollars back in the day. You can build your own in your backyard. Here are the plans to do so. So they were trying. There were a lot of options. But it's still not every kind of family unit could build these shelters because they don't have a house that has a backyard. They are living in an apartment complex. Maybe they don't have $700 of disposable income in that time to build a shelter like this when they have to pay for things like dental care or... You know, other things you would you would pay for in the 60s. Um, Cigarettes. <laughs> it's because everybody smoked them, and it looks like they smoked quite a lot of them uh, in this episode in particular. How do you think Mad Men would have uh, marketed a, a fallout shelter? Picture this. You're in a field, and everything's fine. You're enjoying a picnic. But then, sirens off of the distance. You don't even know where those sirens are coming from. You're in the middle of a field. You were about to propose to your <laughs> girlfriend at the time. And you look at her, and you say... If only we had more. <laughs> Maybe next time you'll have your picnic in a fallout shelter. Vote Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> no. Um, well, I, no, but I'm thinking like uh, Mad Men. You know, it's like you know, you want to sell you know something else like power or something like that. So it's like you can get a fallout shelter with a jacuzzi <laughs> <laughs> while you smoke a cigarette in the water. Exactly. Let's move to our parking lot movie discussion. We're done with the movie that we watched uh, in our living room here, but so pretend like we're at the movie theater. We're done with it. We go outside before we get in our cars and go our separate ways, maybe to our individual fallout shelters. We talk about the movie and what we thought about it. Because the point of this episode of Twilight Zone, it's not, is the Stockton shelter good? It's, it's about the moral quandaries that people face and how they deal with these issues should they arise. So, Joel, do you see any sort of kind of moral issues that come out from having a fellow shelter like this? Like, for example, would you build one if you were in that time period? Forget right now, because we got we can make a case that today is a pretty scary time. But say you were back in the day, 1961, would you build a shelter like this for your family? I go back and forth. Uh, I mean, I, I grew up not really on the coasts. I grew up kind of more in the south, Midwest. Uh, so if I was living there... Would I feel like the the need to build a, sh- a fallout shelter? Maybe not. Now, if I was living 
in Washington, D.C. or right outside Washington, D.C., I might have a different calculation. What do I need to do to be prepared for a certain rare but technically possible eventuality? What moral obligation do I have to do that? I, I think a reasonable minds could come to different conclusions for reasonable reasons, if that makes sense. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, in today's climate, I think our uh, – I think most people would not say we face a, an imminent threat of complete destruction, but you know you have lots of other uh, considerations like random acts of terrorism on like public transportation or in large areas of the pub parks or you know monuments and stuff. I'm thinking like mm-hmm. DC. You've seen where like random acts of uh, significant violence have that same kind of psychological effect. But I always think, well, how much can you really prepare? Uh, And if you're talking about nuclear weapons, you know, if you're living around the Washington, D.C. area, I'm just thinking, I mean, I can try to build something, but as Stockton was saying, it's one, is it even going to do any good? And and second, is it going to matter in the long run if if you open up that door after two weeks and you're still going to not be in a pretty good place? Well, this is interesting because Rod Serling was also having the same debate while he was writing this he was once asked if he had built a fallout shelter and he responded it's my feeling now that if we survive what do we survive for uh what kind of a world do we go into you know if it's rubble and poison water and unedible food and my kids have to live like wild beasts i'm not particularly sure i want to survive in that kind of a world i kind of sometimes think about that too like if i was in that situation I always my, – my first reaction is yes, I would build a shelter because it's the responsible thing to do. There is that question too about what would that world look like because you do have a sense of nuclear war depends entirely on how many bombs were used and where they were used. If it, if it ended up being where all the bombs were dropped on military targets, which might be largely in the center of the country, in the heartland, where we keep a lot of our missile silos, and then the war finishes and that's it and it stops – There might be large parts of the country that are still around. And if you can survive for two weeks and then get to those other places or maybe go to Mexico or another country and try to survive there, if that's an option, then maybe surviving those two weeks would be great. But if all the bombs in the world are used in a full-out continual war and there's nuclear winter and all those kind of bad things, I don't know. Would it really be worth surviving that much longer? Are you just trying to survive for one more day? I mean, there's a point to say that that's what you should try to do. But then the next question is, how do you then adjust that to other people, your friends, your family, who didn't build a shelter? Would you build a shelter for more than just yourself? Would you try to plan for saving a few more people than just your family? And if they try to get in, do you shoot them? Do you keep them out? Like, what do you do? For example, Joel, if I was knocking on your shelter door... Uh, nope, absolutely not. If I was gen- not letting you in. Nope. If I was gently rapping on your shelter absolutely door. Absolutely not. No. See, normally people would have some sort of moral quandary and nope. debate. Perfect no. clarity. <laughs> Never been more sure about something in my life, Tim. So that's why your shelter don't says no, even, no Tims on there. Don't even try it. I think there's a good question about whether or not <laughs> I would want to have a shelter where I would keep other people out. I don't know. I don't know how I would deal with that question. And I think. Rod Serling had a very similar uh, approach to this because he he ends the episode by saying this. There's no moral message to this. There's no you know prophetic statement. Well, th- there is a moral message. It, it's it's yeah. a there's no moral 
answer. There's no answer to whether or not it's a good idea to build a shelter and keep people out. It's just that we need to remain civil. And a lot of people argue that remaining civil meant not building a fallout shelter. In October 1961, after the episode aired, uh, Reverend Angus Dunn, he was an Episcopal bishop in Washington, D.C., he said that using guns to fight off shelter crashers, which I like to There's call a phrase, shelter crashers, uh, was, quote, utterly immoral. And, quote, I do not see how any Christian conscience can condone a policy which puts supreme emphasis on saving your own skin without regard to the plight of your neighbor. I think that's a that's a real question there. Um, and I, the, uh, this episode sparked a lot of debate. I mean, the, the, the same moral quandary can seep into other situations, right? Like any kind of natural disaster or something like that, mm-hmm. where every other house on the block got destroyed by flooding or tornado or or, or, I don't know, or some you know hurricane some storm and, and everyone's trying to like run to seek shelter and it's like well is there a point at which i gotta turn people away and yeah you know now uh funny story uh shelter crashers um that was actually pitched by sterling to the studios hmm. uh they didn't like it as much so he tweaked it a little bit that became wedding crashers interesting slight, slight changes funny story yep Okay. Worked on it for about 40 years. <laughs> well, I'm glad that like, I just read it on the internet. So, well, something else that I read on the internet that might actually be accurate uh, was that Rod Serling was interviewed because his wife and him were trying to basically grapple with this question. And he said, we are struck with the moral and ethical problems of what would happen if there was an alert sounding. We got into our shelter happily because, you know, we built one and neighbors with children came to the door and said, please let us in. There's the problem. I can't answer it. I don't know what is the ethical rightness and justice of this. I have not figured it out. And I think that's why the episode ends the way it does, which it doesn't say one way or the other. Uh, it's because he himself hasn't grappled with it. And I don't really know what I would do, to be honest, as well. Some people that, that took something out of this message, former President Dwight D. Eisenhower, he was asked if he would build a shelter. And he said no. He said even if he had a, quote, very fine shelter, if his wife and children, for example, weren't able to make it to the shelter, he would just walk out of it. He wouldn't want to live in a world where he was the only one to survive. But another question is, Joel, would you say that the way this played out amongst the the neighbors, how quickly they turned on each other, is this a realistic mm-hmm. depiction of how you would think this would go down? Um, you don't have to think about us and our friends and to say we're having a, a, a party, which we are going to tomorrow. Um, if all of a sudden a siren starts to go out and we'll have to fight over the, the basement, Think in the abstract. Like, does this seem reasonable to you, how quickly people turned on each other? If they actually believe that there is – that something was going to happen in 15 minutes, I, you know, I think it could. Uh, I mean, I thought the dialogue was remarkably precise in laying out all the underlying motivations of the characters and stuff. And, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and they he, – he's been building the shelter and people have been giving him grief about it. And so in that sense, it was a little rushed. But once you got to the actual point where people thought bombs were dropping – I mean, I, I think you actually would see a lot of people hmm. because they knew they had the shelter because none of them did. I, you know, I could actually see it playing out that, that quickly. I would like to think, mm-hmm. I would like to believe that the tensions between the neighbors on the outside would not devolve that quickly. That if you had like 15 minutes, I'd like to think that you're neighborly bonds would at least survive for 15 minutes <laughs> but obviously they couldn't 
wait it out and slowly trickle away, you know, their, yeah. their uh, care for one another. They need to kind of quickly show it. That was the thing that really was great plot rating and dialogue for me was the idea of people and how fast they broke into tribes. For, at first it was, you know, we're all together and we're kind of against the Russians because they're over there and we don't like them. But then so quickly the battle became not about us versus the Russians and how we need to survive that, but it became the Stocktons versus everyone else. And then it became the Stocktons versus the neighbors, but not all the neighbors, just the ones that were there at the time. Let us in. Don't let anybody else in. Then when the other ones came by, they said, oh, come on, let's let us in. And then it, it, keep, it kept evolving to everyone that was there. Then mm. they were their own tribe. And then some of the people who wanted to get in at the expense of others would find excuses to exclude other people. You're an immigrant. You shouldn't be allowed. You, you don't have the right young children. I've got, the, I've got two children. You, you didn't wear a tie one. to the party. <laughs> exactly. Your rendition of happy birthday was subpar. We don't want that in the post-survival totally uh, world. Totally off-key. But in fairness to the Stocktons, though, I would distinguish their posture from everyone else. Hmm. Because, yes, he was not letting them in, but I don't think it was the kind of exclusionary or tribal division that the other neighbors exhibited. Whenever he talked to them, he was always focused on kind of the objective reality of we can't support that many people in the shelter. I, I don't think he ever said you don't belong in the shelter. Right. You, don't, you don't deserve to be saved. Well, I think that's the privilege of the fact that they're inside the shelter already and the door is locked. Like you don't have to make that argument. You can simply try to rely on – which is you could argue is true – the practical side that we can't support it. But he didn't do the I told you so either. He didn't. Right? I mean, I, I think they could have easily done that. Because I think the great thing about this episode is, you're right, He Stockton's don't follow through with that. But they do corrupt grapple with the idea that they're realizing something about themselves. They're keeping their neighbors and friends out from this. And there is a, I mean, I don't even know. I, I would say that there would be the situations, should they survive, and they're left to survive in the post-nuclear war world, where they start to question, what does it mean to survive? Is it means to continue the existence of your sails and your body so that you're alive? Or does survival have something more? Is it about surviving with humanity? Is it surviving as people? Because there's a case to be made that that experience no longer lets them have that. There's a, a classic line that people talk about after a nuclear war that the the survivors, the living, will envy the dead because they will have to live in this world either suffering from wounds and radiation or in a world no longer as recognizable to what it was hours before. And fight the robots. That is the next fight that they'll have to deal with, yes. That's true. Now, but, but – so, okay, question for you then. So it seems like you took his comments at the end to be more – moral quandary coming to light yes that he that he didn't fully appreciate it going into it because i took it more to be almost a disappointment in humanity not not the which he's a part of no no i i know but but the uh almost like a disappointment of you guys couldn't get along for five seconds like uh not so much the is life worth living i don't think at any point he ever says you guys couldn't survive for 15 minutes or five minutes for his friends. Correct. Yeah, he's, he he's part of it. He's part of that. And he thinks that – talk about that, the, the damages that no bombs were dropped. But but right. 
how we understand normal to be has been destroyed because of the way that we acted in this moment. Mm-hmm. I, I think he's considering himself as part of that. And I would not be surprised if he never rebuilds that paper mache door and just leaves it the way it is. Thinking that it'd be better just to die than have to go through that moral dilemma again? Right. Mm. I think I think that's what it would be. He might be one of the people that would have been affected by this episode. According to Rod Serling, 1,300 letters and cards were mailed to the studio within two days of the episode. He says he hit some kind of a nerve. Uh, and you have a bunch of different reactions to the episode. One civil defense representative in California by the name of Kenneth Campbell said the episode was, quote, very good, most provocative and thought producing. Due to our distance from Los Angeles, we have met with some apathy here. People who believe that there was little danger. However, civil defense has stressed that the need for shelters and the high danger from fallout. We think your film would make people think. Other reps from the civil defense uh, communities um, asked for copies of the episode to show to their friends and neighbors the importance of building a shelter, which I think really misses the point of the episode. It's not about how great shelters are and how you should build them, and anyone that doesn't is a fool, but I think it has these other issues there. But there's also other people who took from this that fallout shelters aren't really a good idea. From a practical standpoint, you can make a case that fallout shelters make people think that fighting nuclear war is okay. If we're able to survive in some way, you know, maybe of those 200,000 fallout shelters that were created, let's just double that and or say each shelter had a nuclear family, I'm uh, sorry for that, a nuclear family of five people. It's five times 200,000, you get some number. If those people survived and that's what's left of the world, is that a good world? To live, okay, you can make the case that it is, but if that's okay, then it maybe it might make fighting a war seem more likely, more thinkable. It's allowed because if you have a situation where no one survives, you may be more likely to de-escalate a conflict. Maybe consider a world where nuclear weapons aren't uh, around, and you might want to get rid of them. But other people argue that there's sound civil defense strategy, population management, risk reductions. It, you would be crazy not to build a shelter. One good example of that is Margaret Mead, who's an anthropologist who wrote a piece for New York Times Magazine in November 1961, just a couple of weeks, uh, maybe a month or so after this episode aired. The article is called, Are Shelters the Answer? It referenced the Twilight Zone episode in particular and criticized shelter programs as, quote, one more example of Americans' inexplicable affinity for violence, end quote. And that only the wealthy would be able to survive. They're the ones who have the means to build shelters and everyone else, you are stuck. Perhaps the world did not have to wait for a nuclear war to bring about the physical dissolution of civilization. Perhaps it is slowly dissolving morally now. I think that's the debate. I think this episode has some great ways of of dealing with that content. And uh, I don't know, Joel, I don't know what you end up, if you have any final concluding thoughts. I think probably that comment took it a little far. I thought it was kind of a reach to say, mm-hmm. oh, it's our inexplicable affinity for violence. Um, I, I think the whole civilization devolving or dissolving, but both devolving and dissolving, <laughs> would have been more clear if, for example, Stockton had gone into the uh, you deserve it. Mm-hmm. like, And that would get into like – almost class, you know, the wealthy versus non-wealthy, who can get a shelter. You know, if he started saying, well, 
we had the resources to build the shelter, so we should survive, Timmy. Like, I, I could see them really kind of driving it home, but that'd be almost a fatal, you know, like, we deserve to die because we're all... And I could see a Twilight Zone actually, uh, an episode actually doing that to show how, almost like in the uh, zombie horror movies, where, yeah. you know, Roger Ebert said the best zombie movies are ones that actually say more about our normal society than, you know, zombies. Mm-hmm. Talk about how... It's only when you see zombies that you see how horrible humans can get in terms of sur- trying to survive and they'll turn on each other and stuff like that. So one of the other episodes that I mentioned at the top of the show, which is called Shelter Skelter from, I think, 1987. It's the reboot of the Twilight Zone. So it's in color. Uh, that one has a kind of similar theme that you're talking about there. It is very much a, you t- I told you so. Uh, it's a crazy, abusive father who built a shelter and he's like a survivalist. And he tries to survive a war, uh, and it's another fun twist at the end of it. Um, but it's a little bit of a similar plot to it. It's not as highly regarded as this one because it's a little uh, more in your face. But one point that's great about it is it stars Winnie Cooper from The Wonder Years. So I'll give it there those, go. those 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 points for that. All right. So I will end this on a, uh, or at least my my comments, try on a positive note because you know. Please. <laughs> It's easy, easy to get down on uh, this kind of stuff. That's you know why we gotta you know keep it positive. I will say I get what they were doing with like showing those neighbors, but I think that there would be just as many, if not even more, situations in which someone might say, "Oh, I did, I did build a shelter for multiple people because my neighbors," hmm. or "I'll let you in," or uh, I'd like to think that. Even in negative or very uh, precarious or even impossible situations, you can see the worst in humanity, but also the best in humanity. And so I'd like to think that uh, even in such a impossible situation, we could see people at their best. I'd hope so, too. I mean, that's aspirational for me. We can see <laughs> our brothers and sisters at their best. I'm not really buying completely what you're saying because just a few minutes ago you said I couldn't come into your shelter and there wasn't even a question about it. That's me at my best. <laughs> just cutting you off. Oh, <laughs> uh, well. Let's talk about whether the or not... The podcast is ending. <laughs> I'm closing the door. Well, let's talk about uh, whether or not this episode was at its best. Uh, let's do our rating system. Oh, that's a good transition right there. Thank you. That's why they... Uh, did we get paid for this? I don't think so. Uh, we get paid in five-star ratings, hopefully. So we rate every episode consistently one out of five but we like to tailor the rating system so that it accurately describes and measures this episode so i think i've come up with a good one here one out of five fallout shelter doors five being the best because if you have just one fallout shelter door anyone's gonna be able to knock that over no noisy neighbors can knock it over with a small pipe so it's like Five is like five inch steel door. Well, I'm thinking literally five doors. Literally like five stacked multiple doors. doors. You're, it's like okay. it's kind of like if you ever watch Mystery Science three, Theater three thousand, which just started okay. up again. Right. They have the different doors, layers of doors you have to go through. It's like that. You have one door, anyone can knock it over. You got five doors. That's like as secure as a bank vault. You're set. All right. All so right. how many would you give? How many Fallout Shelter doors would you give this episode? Because you don't, you're not a really a big Twilight Zone guy. What do you rank this? Not knowing the rest of the catalog, I'm a little torn. I I like what they were trying to do. I I do think we we didn't harp on this as much. I think as some of the other uh, episodes we've done, where some of the performances 
weren't that great. Yeah, you know, they I, weren't I, spectacular. I, I do think there was still a little uh, Leave it to Beaver, you know, uh, e- even in impossible situations, they're like speaking in very precise. It seemed, yes. it seemed very scripted. Well, the uh, the actor who played Stockton, uh, mm-hmm. Bill Stockton, after the episode came out, like a, le- a couple years later, he watched it mm-hmm. and he said, wow, the writing is really good. My performance... Not so much. Oh, right. So even he said that. I thought his performance was, was the best. I mean, that, uh, the monologue at the end was very good. His eyes of just yeah, not yeah. being able to just comprehend like, what just happened. Where are yeah. we now? Like, what have we become? So I, I think I'm going to give it maybe two and a half. Ooh, okay. Fallout shelter doors. I, I, I don't know if it could have been executed better. I mean, there was the funny like fight scene, which was like a truly awful like fake hit and everything. So middle of the road. Okay. Good, good idea. Execution, well, maybe for, the format. You know, it's only. I'll split. The, I'll do two point seven five. Two point seven five doors. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna have to call a carpenter to get that door set up. Yeah. Uh, it's a custom build. Yeah. Um, I would. I would. I'm gonna give it four. And here's the reason. I. I, right. I think that I really like the way they paced the story. The fact that it was a very good build from, which may not have really seemed like a traditional Twilight Zone episode. It just looked like it was a happy group of neighbors singing happy birthday and having a little bit of toast and stuff. And how quickly it turned to the major kind of crazy plot that's happening. Then how it slowly builds from, we need to get inside the shelter. You know, fighting amongst the family, but then that gets somewhat resolved, kind of. And then they get inside the shelter, and then the next friend comes through, and it keeps building. And how quickly people turn to this idea, oh, this shelter is our shelter. This is the street shelter. Why should we let stupid Maple Street have the the shelter? It's our shelter. But it's not their shelter. It's that weird way that everything breaks down, that there's tribes formed, and how fluid that is. I think that that's a pretty good depiction of a lot of ways that this would go down and not just in this kind of situation but in a lot of ways that we see society working today the us versus them it's constantly changing you may find yourself on the other side of it uh, uh but I, I that's what i like about this episode is it, it has some great content there uh, a lot of good back and forth amongst the, the actors that play off each other mm-hmm. there is some problems why i don't give it a five is that mm-hmm. you know it's the time period but the female characters in this uh episode, oh yeah well that, that's a given they're I mean, t- yeah they're they're terrible characters. They're just screaming and dropping glass, and oh, I can't understand how am I going to handle my emotions. And the the the, the men have to come in and give it them def- a stern talking to. It definitely reflects, like again, the era. Yeah, it's 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 unfortunate that takes it down a little bit for me. It's not like one of those things that would just go around showing everybody, be like, hey, check out this great episode. It, there's some issues there. You have to caveat with it. But even even within that, um, if you can look past that a little bit, it has some great message for how. We should think about these issues. And I think it's a good way. It's a good teaching tool for people to, to kind of work through some of these. But if you want some more stuff to delve into these kind of issues, I've got a couple things to recommend. Uh, but first, I would like to recommend a new podcast that got started very recently called Nukes of Hazard. Nukes of Hazard. So clearly they share our love of puns and naming podcasts about nuke stuff. But they also put out a, a bunch of great content on the latest nuclear news, on on weapons, on budget battles on North Korea, on Iran. Every two weeks or so, they put out an episode on iTunes, on SoundCloud, and a couple other places that I really would recommend uh, checking that out. I also like their episodes because they're less than 20 minutes, so 
unlike our behemoth of an episode, doesn't take up your whole day. So I would check that out. It's a podcast that's run by the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation, which is a nonpartisan think tank based here in Washington, D.C., and it is hosted by James McKeon, a policy analyst at the Center. Feel free to check that out. I uh, highly recommend it. I also recommend a book that I mentioned before, but I finally got around to completely finishing, called Fallout. Easy to remember by Todd Strasser. It's from 2013. And this is a book, it's kind of like a young adult fiction book, but it is written along the lines of this same scenario where a family builds a fallout shelter during the Cuban Missile Crisis. But unlike our world, the bombs do fall. So the family needs to get in their shelter and the neighbors fight their way in and they get inside the shelter. They have enough air, but they don't have enough food or water. And they fight and they go through all these kind of crazy circumstances over the course of the two weeks. The mother, um, because they when they broke into the shelter, she fell and hurt her head. And it becomes this whole idea about who do you keep in the shelter. There's racial dynamics that are really fascinating for the time period. So I highly recommend Fallout. I also recommend this great Simpsons episode that parodied this episode of The Twilight Zone called Bart's Comet from 1995. It's an episode where Bart finds a comet that's heading for the town and everyone freaks out and they try to get into Ned Flanders' family shelter. And unlike the Stocktons, uh, Ned Flanders is a nice guy, so he tries to let everybody in the town into his shelter. Everybody can fit but one person and they vote out Ned Flanders even though it's his shelter, but because they decide he's unuseful, we can get rid of him. He's not going to be helpful once the comet hits. But then Homer feels bad. He basically volunteers to go outside and be with Ned, and then everybody follows him. Uh, and then it turns out that the comet was coming down, but because of how bad the pollution is in in Springfield, the comet breaks up in the atmosphere and just ends up like hitting a weather balloon that falls down and destroys the shelter. So no one... If they were in the shelter, it would have survived. The way they prevent this from ever happening again is they destroy the telescopes, which would saw the comet in the first place, much like a great Simpsons episode. Finally, I recommend checking out the Twilight Zone podcast, which is hosted by Tom Elliott. Um, by some crazy coincidence or maybe some spooky Twilight Zone-esque fate, they put out an episode on The Shelter uh, in April fairly recently before we recorded this episode. And they've got some great behind-the-scenes details that I talked about today. And so I definitely would recommend checking out Twilight Zone podcast if you want some more very highly polished and great episodes uh, of another podcast that clearly loves one particular thing and does a great amount of research into it. And you can see a lot of passion coming out of that. All right, Joel, thanks for coming on the podcast uh, and having these conversations. And hopefully you'll reconsider keeping me out of your shelter. I'd love to come in. I'm a great cook. And I'll bring a lot of I'll bring all my fallout manuals. Well, so. you know, Tim, you know, we've known each other a long time, you know, been good friends. So. No, no, I'm, I'm going to keep you out. What, nope. if, what if I bring my Game Boy? I want my jacuzzi and <laughs> I, I need the extra space for the jacuzzi. So uh, I understand that. That's OK. Maybe next apocalypse. <laughs> Well, that's our show. Thanks for listening to another episode of Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or want to tell us what we did right or got wrong, there are a couple ways you can contact us. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast. We're on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast. Or you can send us an email, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, if you enjoyed the program, uh, we'd appreciate it if you take a second, consider subscribing on iTunes and leaving us a review. And that way you can let us know what you think of the show and what other people should be checking out. Until next time, this has been Joel and Tim Westmeyer.
And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one, and make sure to lock that shelter door. Thank you.